0: This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. For this episode of the Paltrocast, I spoke with a bunch of artists from very different walks of life. This includes Cobra Kai star William Zapka, singer-songwriter Lucy Woodward, legendary journalist and television host Dan Rather, and two members of Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band. First up are highlights from my phone interview with William Zapka. Odds are that you first became aware of him as Billy Zapka from his work in great hit movies like The Karate Kid, Back to School, and National Lampoon's European Vacation. But there's a lot more to the guy because he's a musician, he's an Oscar-nominated director, and he's from a very interesting show business family. Hi, Darren. How's it going there? Good, buddy. How you doing? Great. Thank you very much. Are you calling from Los Angeles? Uh, I am calling from Los Angeles. Where are you at? I'm on Long Island, New York. Have you ever been out here before? I believe you were born in New York, correct? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm from Port Washington. What part of Long Island are you on? Oh, uh, Long Beach, Long Island. Oh, right on, right on. Yeah, man, uh, I'm a Long Islander at heart, man. I moved when I was 10 years old. Born in the city, lived, uh, raised in Long Island, and uh, moved to California when I was about 10.
0: Wow. I didn't realize that. I mean, going into your family history, did that have to do with your dad working on the original Tonight Show and the Tonight Show being in New York back then?
1: Yes. My, my folks met on the Tonight Show. My mom was Dick Carson's assistant. My dad was associate director of the Tonight Show. So they met in the control room then. And uh, my dad was a, a, a director, a senior director on staff at NBC for many years. Uh, New York is about 20 years, and uh, when I was a kid, he would bring me into the city from Long Island on the train, and I would walk on the the sets of uh, The Tonight Show, and the doctors, soap operas, he was doing some game shows, and I was exposed to uh, all the magic of TV and film uh, at a young age, and then he moved uh, to California and got transferred to uh, NBC out here in California, so um, we all uprooted, and, uh, and then I turned into a California boy slowly.
0: <laughs> right. Now, I also read in your family history that uh, you have worked with your dad's publishing company over the years. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah, he's still. Um, I don't know if his company's still open. His music is still out there. My dad wrote the original uh, Tonight Show theme for Jack Parr. Um, and then he wrote many. Uh, he composed many scores for television back in the day. He wrote a famous Christmas song, Christmas Eve in My hometown," that was sung by Kate Smith and Bobby Vinton and um Jim neighbors and uh, a number of people, and it's being recorded even today uh Eddie Fisher made it famous too back in the day when it was early recording so big island music is um was uh, involved with uh television and radio and and film uh and music and I was part of that the company as a company isn't working right now, but all his music is out there and being licensed used and heard every christmas season and uh and all over the place so uh yeah we were uh, we work we're a tight family and uh my dad still has his music out there.
0: And do you yourself have musical genes? Have you ever written songs?
1: I have. I was um raised in a musical family clearly. My brother turned into a composer and a um he went the musical piano route and I took guitar lessons and actually got a degree in guitar music and I was a session player and um trained to be a session player. Didn't actually do sessions but I uh, music, play lead guitar, electric guitar, I played in many bands growing up. Um and uh So my dad was in, he had one foot as a, as a AD and a production manager for films. He worked with Clint Eastwood and De Niro, and he also had another foot in the musical world. And my brother took off in the musical direction and I more went in the film direction. We kind of split the baby and my brother's out doing music in Nashville and I'm here doing film and television in California. my dad happily retired up in Grass Valley, California near Lake Tahoe.
0: Wow, wow. Well, I want to come back to that in a little bit after I ask you a little bit about Cobra Kai, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay, so with Cobra Kai, I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes as to how awesome Johnny Lawrence was. You know, people who liked bad guy characters always loved Johnny Lawrence. But once the YouTube video and things of that nature came out, people definitely got a perspective change. But I'm curious when you first found out about the backstory of Johnny
1: Lawrence. Uh, Well, as we know it in the Cobra Kai show, uh, the new creators, Josh, John, and Hayden, really wrote in and kind of detailed what I... I Carried from the first film, when I when I did the Karate Kid, there wasn't much about his parents, about his family life, but I I, I surmised that Johnny didn't have a, a good family home, and um, and that crease was very much uh, you know his his mentor and and, a, and somewhat of a father figure. Um, the detail of that has been fleshed out in Cobra Kai, and that's all from the imaginations and the genius of John and Josh and Hayden and. Um, and them diving deeper into having Sid as a stepfather and what that looked like. And so that all came from them. Um, but they, I think they saw a video that I, I did on the 20th anniversary DVD of the Karate Kid, where I talked a little bit about how I viewed Johnny and how I stepped into it, the character and didn't see him as a bad guy. Um, even though he was the antagonist of the film, I I saw him having a little more dimension and, Um, And they picked up on that. And um, that was one of the seeds of their inspiration for the show was to flush out what what Johnny's about. And there's kind of a, a, you know, behind every every bully is, uh, you know, uh, it it, is a victim. And in a way, you know, as people turn into things, it's downloaded the behavior that people have when they're treating each other badly um, is typically downloaded from somewhere, uh, sibling or you know, a social environment school or whatever. And, um, mostly for the most part, people aren't all bad. Um, so they really wanted to turn him inside out and create a platform for him to, uh, to be more dimensional and human. And that was something that I said when I went into it from the very beginning that I, I didn't have any interest in, you know, being set up to take a fall or to turn into the ultimate villain of all time that in order for this to work, that he'd have to be deep and wide and, have a lot of perspective and um and they served that up for me in the writing and um it was a lot of fun to play
0: right it comes across that way and i'm curious how much of a refresher was needed for you to get back into shape to do martial arts and all that
1: yeah well I've, i've been training on and off for all this time since the film um but it took uh you know it was a quick turnaround by the time we sold this show to production wasn't much time a few months so I jumped back into it hard right away and uh, had a great trainer, Hito Koda and his wife, Janelle, who's amazing. And uh, they got me back into uh, fighting shape fast. And, of course, with my, my workout program and all my fitness I did on the side, it's like cardio and my diet and all that. And so it took a couple months to get ready for the show, especially for that first opening fight scene at the um, outside the mini-mart.
0: Now, did you get into martial arts in the first place? Because something inspired you, or is it from a fitness angle? What got you into it in the first place?
1: Well, the film, The Karate Kid. Because when I got cast, I didn't know any karate. I was I was a wrestler in high school, and that's about the, that's about the extent of my combat skills. Um, so when they cast me for the film, I was you know I was blown away that I was chosen to play the uh, All Valley former champion uh, of of the valley because I didn't know any karate. So I I, I started on the film. It was all. Having an amazing teacher, Pat Johnson, who is the referee in the Karate Kid, um, with the Mustache—he's the one that trained both Ralph and I—and uh, he's just a Grandmaster, a legend, martial artist, and he trained me. He trained me the right way, and he would train me the way Kreese would have trained me. And so I, I got a crash course in it, and his presentation. And I mean, these guys, these, these martial artists. Uh, that could tear you apart with their pinky, or the nicest guys on the planet. You would never know what they what they can uh, what they're carrying, what they what kind of punch they pack, so to speak. And uh, to meet these guys as as gentlemen, as as good natured, loving uh, masters, uh, I was instantly taken into it, and and it was infected from the very beginning of feuding Karate Kid, and and I stayed with it um, for a number of years after the film. And then I was working and I couldn't stay in the training, but then I'd go back to a martial arts film and I'd get brushed up with a bunch of new great martial artists and world champions and just became a part of my, my life. And I can't imagine my life, despite the Karate Kid, I can't imagine my life without karate, martial arts, and the discipline and the, um, the that it gives and the uh, sense of yourself and all the confidence and, and being in touch with your body, which is really what it is. It's like da- you know, a dancer or an athlete has that. It's just to be... in in control of your center and to have a balance in your life. It's, um, it's a, it's an incredible, uh, incredible art form.
0: Now the reviews on the show, as far as I've seen are just excellent across the board. A lot of people are anticipating, Oh, it's another reboot, you know, full house even got rebooted, but were you surprised when the reviews came across as so positive and people were focusing on you as just such a strong lead in any way? Was that surprising?
1: Sure. It was, it was surprising. Um, We had no idea what, what uh, the response was going to be. I can just tell you that when we did the film, everybody jumped into their characters and we never could have anticipated that it would become so beloved. And this many years later, um, 35 years later, still, still be touching people. And, uh, so, you know, we could never have seen that coming. But with the show, to to see how it's taken off and and the feedback and the reviews, they're flattering, honestly, and they're 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 very humbling. And 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 we're excited mostly that people are enjoying the show. And you know, it's it's it, the, the, the 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 reviews are fantastic and exciting to read. But that's uh, it's more about touching people, and uh, I, I love to hear what the fans have to say. I love to see kids that are getting into martial arts and young men that you know tell me hey man you know I relate so much to Johnny I know I just went through this uh kind of train wreck in my life and I've been down on my luck and to see Johnny pull himself up from the bootstraps and try to make it work again uh in spite of himself and all of his you know shortcomings he's given me hope and um that's the stuff that I I get excited about but um and I'm thrilled that the character has dimension and he's he's not the same guy from the film. He's 30 years older. He's got 30 years of life from then to now. And he's really in many ways, a whole new character. Um, but with just the backstory of the karate kid. So, um, that's the kind of round answer, but, um, you know, we're thrilled that people are responding to it positively. Um, and that's, that's, that's the best feeling
0: and another one of your iconic films was back to school and I'm curious if Rodney Dangerfield was as fun to work with as it seems like he was
1: he was great to work with and um, I met Rodney in an elevator on the way to Madison Wisconsin filming back to school I just got off the plane going to my hotel room and he was heading to the sauna and he was <laughs> his hair sticking up and he was in a in a robe and we had a fun exchange and uh, he was great, you know. All these comedians—Pat like Morita, Chevy Chase—I had a chance to work with, um, and uh, and Rodney—they're they're comedians, and there's there's so much energy coming from them. But uh, he was uh, also very very endearing, and he was he had that sort of soft side. And the the you know the, there's a little tragedy a little bit with comedians and some sometimes. And uh, we got to be good friends actually on that movie. And at Christmas, I remember putting in a uh, motorhome, I gave him a Christmas card. And just said Merry Christmas and stuck in his motor home and thought nothing of it. And at the wrap party in in Malibu, we had a big wrap party at this beach. And, uh, I remember eating dinner. Rodney was sitting at another table far away. And I was in the middle of my dinner. I felt a hand on my shoulder and there was Rodney. And he said, "You know, I just want to say thank you for that Christmas card you gave me. He goes, nobody does that. And I just want you to know that it meant a lot. And that was really, uh, I was really touched by that. So he was great and, and very human. And, uh, and also that film, if I, if, I always say, if I had to do shoot something again right now, what would it be? I always say "Back to school," because that film was such a party. All the energy that you saw with Downey and you know and, and Sam Tennyson and G. And Gordon and all that was just so much fun. And, and Rodney really had a it was a lot of fun to be around on set. Um, and uh, you know, his, he was electric.
0: And beyond acting, you've achieved success as a director. Do you have any directing projects that you can talk about or upcoming projects in general besides Cobra Kai?
1: I, I have a number of projects that I've been brewing and, and developing behind the scenes that, um, that I'm uh, still working on. I actually got put on hold when Cobra Kai came around because uh, Cobra Kai took center stage. But uh, I am definitely, you know, I wrote it and, and produced a short film uh, a number of years back, that was nominated for an Oscar, and I really enjoyed that process of being behind the camera and crafting, and being the composer and not the violin playing and playing his part. So there's definitely that hunger in me, and uh, now it's been a couple of years since I've done any directing um, and, uh, and behind the camera. So I'm I'm definitely getting the itch and and uh, and looking for the right time and place and the right project to do to put out. Also as an actor too, because this has opened a lot of doors for me just in front of the camera so i'm weighing all of the options and meantime i'm super focused on the show because we shoot and you know for a good quarter of the year and then we have post for the next one and then we're in press, and then uh hopefully we go back soon um and there's a little bit of time for me personally but uh we'll find that right time and project to do and i can't wait for that but right now it's all about birthing cobra kai and making sure that lands and sticks well and not trying to split my focus and take my energy away from that.
0: Right on. So uh, in closing, any last words for the kids? Any last words for the kids?
1: Uh, the kids of the world, you mean? Sure. Well, you know, I think, you know, this show is a great, a, a great example and demonstration of, of relationships and uh, parenting and mentorship. And we're all looking for somebody to, to lead us and to get us through this world, this life, you know. And unfortunately, hopefully, we can bump into somebody that has a positive influence on us that's been down the road. Um, before so I would say choose your mentors wisely and um, you know ask a lot of questions and and go for it I would say you know to kids when I meet them you know to dream big you know because anything can happen I remember being 10 years old moving to California and I started doing commercials when I was 12 years old it was my first commercial and I always had a dream in my heart that you know I would do this someday that I would be an actor someday that would be my life and when you're that young and you're looking up and I met people like Chuck Norris, like Chuck Norris. And I remember him crashing through a door on a set sometime and and the way he came up and kind of patted my head and, you know, and just touched me. And I did a a movie when I was 14, I was a stand in on a movie called the Island with Michael Caine and David Warner. And I remember these, you know, mega stars who I looked up to just taking the time to be nice and to talk nicely. And, And I always dreamed that, you know, maybe one day, uh, that'll be me. And somehow, I don't know how all the way, cause you don't, you can't plan your path, but, um, stick to your dreams and, and, uh, don't be afraid to take chances and don't be afraid to fail and, and have some faith. And, uh, the river knows where it's going. I always say, you know, life's river somehow knows where it's going. So choose your, choose your people wisely, choose your friends, wisely, choose people that you look up to wisely, and uh and it goes fast before you know it you're an adult and then you're that guy so pick your team and uh, and good luck and i'm rooting for you it
0: really it is my favorite show on tv right now or whatever you want to call it tv so thank awesome. you so much for
1: your time my pleasure thank you so much man have a great day take yeah. care long island for me all right <laughs> will do take care
0: next up are highlights from my recent phone call with Lucy Woodward who recently released the album titled Music 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 with iconic guitarist Charlie Hunter. Over the years, Lucy's been an in-demand session and touring singer, and her credits include Rod Stewart, Snarky Puppy, Barbra Streisand, Celine Dion, Pink Martini, the list goes on and on and on, but that's beyond having some hit singles of her own as a solo artist. I caught up with Lucy on the eve of the release of Music, 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 hope I'm saying that one okay, uh, while she was staying in Greensboro, North Carolina. A song like Can't Let Go is like it's just an obvious, obvious single. When in the process did that song come along to you?
2: I've been singing Can't Let Go just for fun for years with my own band and just sitting in. It's an easy tune that you could just kind of jump in with anybody and sing it. But I I love this song. It's so simple. It's Lucinda Williams written by Randy Weeks and and I think it may have been her biggest hit, I'm not sure. But um Everyone kind of knows it or they're familiar with it. And I just always felt it could go so many directions, like slow and bluesy or, up, you know, up-tempo swing. I've done it, like, in jazz trios. And I was like, Charlie, what do you think about this thing? When we were, when we were putting together our repertoire for our set and the album um, and for The Road, I just threw this tune out at him, and he was like, I love it. So it just turned naturally into... This kind of funk thing It went through different tempos And grooves And we used to do it really, really fast And then he just found this kind of oh Man, he's just like the funk Funk maestro And uh, I don't know At times, and sometimes, it's different every night but, but at times it can sound like a You know The Bee Gees <laughs> And it's, it's super fun to sing So it's pretty natural And it does change the groove every night a little bit But it always keeps that Funk is always up there
0: Had you and Charlie known each other for a long time?
2: No, actually. We'd known of each other, but we met through Snarky Puppy Friends. Um, We both put out a record on... Michael League is a band leader, bass player of Snarky, and he has a label called Ground Up, and we both put out a solo record um, on that label, and we met at the Ground Up Festival maybe two or three years ago we were both performing and um, then about a year ago he was scheduled to do a tour with an amazing um, Mexican artist that he produced and worked with he was really young and he was set to go on tour with her last January and four days before the tour her visa got denied so he was brainstorming and somebody from ground up said "Um, call Lucy you know we both come from the blues so we thought it would be a a cool match. He just was like, Hey, do you remember me, Charlie Hunter? I was like, Of course, I do, dude. So that was it. Four days later, I was on a plane and we were, and we were touring like every night. We kind of threw the set together in the, over a bunch of texts, and there it was. So it was a very fast, very trusting relationship immediately, but we hadn't really known each other that long just through friends so you're both you know solo artists but
0: also side people is this a band or is this you know taking it one day at a time touring together and recording together
2: well it's a it's a band duo project I've never done this before and he's worked and collaborated with a lot of people but he's always been Charlie Hunter or Charlie Hunter Trio and he's had a couple of projects where it was like a band name and I've certainly never done that. I've always been like, Lucy. And so it's a real relief in the sense of their shared responsibilities and you can bounce off ideas with another person that's not just like, you know, someone you play with. Like, what do you think of? Like, this is actually us bouncing off ideas about the, the you know, for the well-being of the, of the project, um, bigger picture and everything. So it is, I'm going to say it's bandy bandy band-esque but there's just no band name so it's charlie hunter and lucy woodward so it's duo but always will always play with a drummer so it's really a trio well i don't know i have no idea (laughs) but it's uh it has a very band-like quality and you, you can tell on stage that we're a unit for sure i mean it's like too much fun it's not it's not uh we're both very featured and uh it's certainly a collaborative effort
0: so what does the media future look like just a bunch of gigs scheduled you and him once the album comes out
2: the album is out april 19th and the pre-order is out now but we're basically on tour pretty much for the rest of the year so i'm in greensboro now and we're on a day off today and then we have i think five shows this week day off next sunday maybe five or six shows the following week and then we're going to break for may um And I'm going to go to Europe and do some of my own things there that I had scheduled and big dance things and my own shows there. And then he's going to meet me in Holland in June. And we're going to do a little 10-day Europe tour and then come back to the U.S. We'll do a whole month, exactly a month from July to August, U.S. And uh, then back to Europe in September, back October, uh, sorry, back to Europe in September. Every other month we're in U.S., the U.S. or Europe. So um, we're doing this. It's actually happening. And it all came from like a little, you know, where you jumped on my little tour to fill in for this girl who couldn't make it. <laughs> no, I mean, they need, they need to do it together one day, but it's just like funny little accidents that happen.
0: Right. So does that in a way derail all the side work that you like to do? Or does this all teach you to take things more one day at a time?
2: Interesting. Um, I mean, this is definitely a one day at a time, but it kind of shifts your whole perspective in the sense of, um, let's, you know, we're committed to this. So, you know, we're both, as far as Sidemen, I don't even know if I have, like, I mean, I want to just focus on on this for the year, and we're even talking about the next record already, but I'm not even sort of home enough to take side man <laughs> work, um... I, I actually haven't done that darren in a while now because I've been like just constantly on the road, but uh, we both I, I don't know I guess when we're playing with other people it's um, like I haven't sung backgrounds in a long time, which is I kind of miss it, but it's kind of refreshing also just to really hone in and, and focus on what I need to be what I need to be doing. so I think every record is like that when you make a new record, you hone in on what you need, like what the job is, what needs to be done in that, in that time, whether, you know, you you know, when I was singing with Rod Stewart, you're on that tour, you're on that record, you're doing that thing. And then when you're making your own record, you're, you know, it's your own kind of path. Of course, it's your job to make the best shows possible and, uh, do what you need to do to get it, to get it out there. So I'm like that, it's just kind of a state of mind with every, with every project, with every record. Sorry, it's like it's hard to actually put into words because I haven't thought about it. It's just something you do. You're just like, okay, here I am, I am present. Go, you know. So it's, that's why I'm mumbling because it's or fumbling for the words because like I never really thought about it.
0: Right. Well, your last few records have been interesting in that they've. All been in different directions from each other, but at the same time, they all sound like Lucy Woodward records. So, has your you know taste changed in the past few years in terms of what you like to listen to, or is it just a coincidence and everything happens in the in the in the studio?
2: I think so much what, what keeps all these records connected is whether they're covers or whether I've written the songs or co-written songs, is that they're all my they're all my voice connecting them. And of course I go through stages of like only listening to Zeppelin or then only listening to Emily King or then only listening to Shaka. And so if someone wanted me to sing Billie, Billie Holiday one day and Janice Chaplin and sound like a Janice Chaplin, you know, kind of voice the next day, it's just what I did. So for many years, that was my job. And then I remember one day, I thought I I don't even know what my sound is anymore because I'm just so busy doing like other people's sounds. So I actually had to stop. This is years ago now, but I had to stop doing that because it was I had to stop stop taking certain se- or slow down in the session world because it was I really didn't know who I was and yet I wanted to go out and get a record deal and you know do gigs. But I lost focus of what my sound was or maybe I didn't even have a sound yet because I was so busy imitating other people so it's kind of a blessing and a curse paid the bills like you know I loved my job but it was like a point when I had to stop so when I started you know making records and getting a record deal or losing a record deal of course because that always happens (laughs) um, then I had to hone in what the you know sound was of of these records and sometimes it was super organic so if I you know, we did a we would do a song like like can't let go even on the the Charlie Hunter record. It's a song I've been doing for an, a long time live. Naturally, it takes its shape with different bands, different cities, different countries. Everyone reacts to that song in a different way. But you do it enough that you make it your own. I've never recorded it before, so it felt right to do that with Charlie because you're like, man, this this shit, this, everyone loves this song. Even if they don't know it, they love the song because it's just up and cool, you know. So I think that ha- putting songs together through any of my records, whether they're covers or not, I usually lived in them a while before recording them. So maybe once in a while I would do a write a song and I would just go record it. But living with the songs on the road, seeing how they feel in front of an audience, that was always really... Uh, a good gauge for me to see if it was kind of worth it or you get your feel, you just live in it a little bit more. And as a singer, that's really, I guess, any any musician, that's, that's just super natural to do.
0: Right on. So any last words for the kids?
2: Any last words for the kids? Pay for your music. This is the one thing I've been saying for 15 years. Buy music. Don't do everything for free. Don't get everything for free. And, uh, you know, let those songwriters and, songwriters and artists get... Get what they deserve. Pay for it, people. (laughs) No, that's, is that negative of me? No. It's actually the truth.
0: Next up is my chat with the Reverend Payton and washboard Breezy Payton. They are two thirds of the Reverend Payton's big damn band. I saw this group at this year's Clearwater Sea Blues Festival in Clearwater, Florida, and they blew me away. I had the chance to speak with the Reverend and Breezy backstage after their show. And huge thanks go out to the band's tour manager, Shane S. Ferguson, for making the interview happen. Earlier today, uh, I saw you fishing, mm-hmm. and I heard you talking about fishing on stage. Do you tour with fishing rods in your van? About 15 of them. Yeah. Yeah,
3: all from- different types of fishing, since we're traveling all over. So we got sea stuff, we got fly stuff, we got uh, freshwater stuff.
4: Yeah, we're set up from... Uh- Fly fishing for trout to control uh, for sailfish, pretty much everything. Wow, and have you been
0: fishing your whole lives, both of you? Yeah,
4: i been fishing, long. I've been playing guitar. I've been playing guitar a long time. <laughs> wow, so when did people start calling you Reverend? When
3: mm-hmm.
4: I was about 18. Yeah, 70 or 18, something like that. And have you always known him to be Reverend the whole time?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what all his buddies yeah. called him. No, well, no, that's what no. my mom uh, called okay. me. <laughs> my
4: mom called me Rev.
0: So, is this your first time in Clearwater? I don't know. Have
3: we played Clearwater proper? I don't think so. I don't nope. think so either. I've been
4: here. I vacationed here when I was a kid. I, we, was a ver- we was we went and fished that pier last night, and I never fished that pier. And uh, I would remember something like that. We uh, we fished a lot of piers in Florida, man. I don't think we've ever been to Clearwater and fished. Um, I got to thinking about it. I was like, I don't know how we missed it. I, I, think, I think we, we drove by one time. Tampa
3: and Pete, though, for sure.
4: We drove by one time. I'm, I'm positive of this. We drove through one time, uh, because I remember the way like the roundabouts are right there by the pier, and it was too much of a hassle to park. We were gonna eat lunch there, and said, forget it, and kept going. Uh, so we got real lucky last night. because We had the van with the trailer. If I had to go over again, I would not have brought the trailer, but I would have dropped it somewhere. But we got real lucky, found spaces. We didn't have to walk too far. It was kind of a miracle. It was a zoo there last night. Absolute zoo. It was a million people. It was fun. That pier is one of the best fishing piers I've ever been on. We've been on a lot of them too. Sure. It has lights in the water, like big bright lights, and it lures in the fish like every pier should have. But it, it
3: closed at 10. Next week they start being 24 hours, but for some reason. So they
4: kicked everybody off at 10. So we only fished two hours, so we were a little bit disappointed. We, we figured them out too. It was like right then we start catching, figured them out. And then they're like, everybody off the pier. <laughs> so
0: So you'll have to come back ultimately. Yeah. Well, we hope to. Have us back. And then a question over to you about the washboards uh i had the pleasure last year of touring the columbus washboard factory
3: that's who custom makes mine really Yep, i've got the only washboard sponsorship in the world <laughs> so yeah they custom make mine so they're like special ones to my specs that they silk screen our logo and stuff on but they've been a big supporter of us for a long time so when well, you say one
0: uh, to your specs meaning you went to the factory they measured your hands
3: no, no, you that. choose what type of wood you want, what type of metal, because you can get them from glass to galvanized steel to stainless steel. Uh, how you want the ridges, there's different ridges, you know. Not all washboards uh, are the same, so. And there's a big sound difference, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've played all different kinds, so. Uh,
4: yeah, I we, prefer we like the We like the way they're, they, they have uh, two or three different ridge designs, and the one that she plays is the one we like the best. It's the most pleasing to them. our ears, anyway. How many washboards do you
0: own?
3: <laughs> I go through wow. about 100 a year.
0: Go through 100 a year?
3: Yeah.
0: So, when you start a tour, do you have 100 in your van? Do you have three? Uh, they
3: mail them to us on tour, so they're we pretty good about it. They travel with a dozen or so, keep some in storage. But, um, you know, a lot of times after the show, we'll, we sell it at the merchandise table and sign it. Um, but also, if, if I play more than three shows on them, I wear a hole through the metal, so wow. it sounds best when they're fresh.
0: Was that your first instrument?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I sang uh, growing up. I did a lot of singing and stuff. Messed around with other percussion, but really, washboard was my first. I play drums now, but you know we have a drummer, so that's not needed. But, uh, and I'm definitely better at the washboard than drums. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll be better drums.
0: Got it. So what does the rest of 2019 look like for the band?
4: Well, right now... Um... We're going to be going to Europe twice. Uh, lots of festivals in the summer. Um, we'll be playing. I don't know how many different countries. You know, uh, it's uh, France is uh, April. Headline the Juke Joint Fest in Clarkston, Mississippi again. Uh, man, lots of stuff. Hopefully, uh, yeah, we got nominated for a BMA Blues, Blues Music Awards. So we're hoping to be at the awards then in May for that, and then. Um uh, man, just lots of, lots of tour covering a lot of ground. Gonna, it looks like we're going to be real busy. So it's cool. We got this, you know, record that's out I'm trying to get people to listen. To it. Well, going back to the show that you did earlier, do you have a festival set versus a club set? Kind of. I mean, we only play, it's a shorter set. So this was just an hour. So you have to kind of plan on, you know, to try to get everything that you want to say in an hour. You know what I mean? So...
3: uh, I mean, we put the same amount of energy into each show, but we might change the songs a little bit. You know, it depends on whether we're playing to our audience or a new audience, you know, too. That changes a little bit.
4: Yeah, and also, too, like, I think certain songs work better in in an enclosed space, and certain songs work better when you're playing outdoors to infinity. You know what I mean? Like, So you have to kind of think of it that way, too, you know. Um, They had that big TV screen behind us, and that helps, you know. I was, uh, I was I was I happy that they had that because it always helps grab people in the very back. They can see right, you know, so that was good. Well, when you say we had to play a shorter set, only
0: an hour, uh, a lot of bands an hour would actually be a really long set. Like if you saw a Ramon show That's for right. an hour,
4: yeah. <laughs> that'd be a long time. Yeah, <laughs> so it's all uh, relative. And then if you go see some like hippie jam band, they they play like four hours, you know. But but they only play three songs, so it, uh, you know, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> well, can <laughs> you? Comfortably play a three-hour show, or is that something that not like, like we do? It would not, not like, like we, we do. do. I
3: mean, we don't really play covers either, so we play all the original yeah, not, music, so that makes a
4: difference. Because our show's intense, kicking <laughs> stuff over and running around and dancing and stuff. Like if we were just standing, staring at our feet, maybe, you know. <laughs> and, and I that leads also to the fact that you did something on
0: stage I've never seen done before—a seventh-inning yeah. stretch.
4: Yeah. When did that find its way into your set? Well, I mean, I don't know. If people are sitting down, I always make them stand up. That's just it. That's all We to don't say.
3: play a lot of shows where people are sitting down. So, you yeah. know, sometimes you deal with that at festivals, especially when they've got that, like, well, VIP,
4: VIP area. seating area. Normally at festivals that you wouldn't ever so, sit down. It know, so, it helps. Yeah, I don't like playing to people sitting down. American music should never be listened to sitting down. All American music at its heart and center and core is dance music. From blues to rock and roll to country to bluegrass to old time jazz. R&B, hip-hop, it's all dance music at its start. The only music that is American music that is not dance music is maybe like really boring, terrible folk music. And uh, we have nothing to do with that.
0: I think uh, that's the line of everything. The American (laughs) music
4: should be not listened to. American music is dance music at its core. And American music is the music of the rest of the world. Not gonna top that. Uh, I mean, there is nothing, I I mean, go back to the beginning. The start of every genre of American music, and it is dance music at its start. The beginning of rock and roll, it's there's every other song had its own dance. The beginning of blues was all about dancing. The beginning of jazz was all about dancing. I mean, every every other song had its own dance. You go back to the beginning of country music. They used to, the country used to only be uh, listened to in these giant circular, these giant circular rooms, so that people could dance in a circle, like you know, like actual like dance dance with each other, and. Uh, you go back and you listen to uh, old time music. You know, there's all like you know, it's all dance music. All of it. you know, people c- like calling uh, you know, it was a barn dance or a juke joint or whatever. It all is dance music at its core. And uh, you know, somehow people have kind of forgotten that in a lot of ways, especially after a certain age. But you know, like if you go to a, a like a hip hop show, I mean, that's the deal. You know what I mean? It's dance music. It's, it's what it is. All American music is dance music. You know, Margo Burnside said blues ain't nothing but dance music. Yeah, you know, it is. That's a, a, that's the way it is. Wow. Deep. <laughs> so, uh, in closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, I don't know, man. Check us out. Check follow us on YouTube. We got lots of cool videos on our YouTube channel. We uh, um, uh, you know, we're always trying to add more stuff. You know, people should stay up. Like, you have to follow us on all of the social media stuff because the algorithms they bury us now. You know, so you got to like follow us everywhere and get on our email list too.
0: Finally, you'll hear highlights from a recent media call in which legendary journalist and television host Dan Rather answered some questions that I had for him. Dan Rather is the host of the acclaimed Access TV series The Big Interview, in which he interviews top entertainers. Prior guests have included Kid Rock, Sammy Hagar, Steve Perry, Weirdo Yankovic, Billy Bob Thornton. Again, the list goes on and on. It's a great show. And Dan was every bit as genuine as I could have hoped him to be.
5: Our next question here comes from our good friend Darren Paltrowitz, which Paltrow Paltrowcast and um, any other websites he works with. Uh, on the subject of the big interview, you have interviewed a lot of top musicians. Uh, when did you first become a fan of music? Well, I've always been a fan of music. But keep in mind that uh, I grew up in Texas uh, in the 1930s and early 1940s. And for the early part of my life, if Hank Williams or Ernest Tubb or Roy Acuff didn't sing it, I didn't know it. Uh, But later on, uh, I want to emphasize, I've never been musically inclined. That is, I don't play an instrument, which was to my late mother's chagrin that she gave me lessons and everything, but nothing took. But at any rate, uh, as life went on, I developed a, a... a liking for just about all kinds of music. I think it's fair to say, in fact, I know it's fair to say that I know least about classical music, uh, but uh, in later years I have become acquainted with opera and classical music and uh, for rock and roll, uh, like nearly everybody else. Uh, you know, I got onto it fairly early in the 1950s uh, with the likes of Elvis. But, uh, you know, I do want to emphasize that my knowledge about music has never been very broad or deep, uh, by doing the big interviews, uh, it's increased some. But I don't play an instrument. I uh, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket with a lid on it, uh, which is one reason I enjoy doing uh, these big interview interviews. Uh, that the time one gets through with the homework, and I'm pretty much a homework kid in the preparation, and then do the interviews, it's been a real education for me. All right, our next question here is a bit of a fun one from Darren Paltrowitz. He says, you are famously associated with the R.E.M. song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Are you aware of any other songs that reference you, and was that song a big honor within your career? Well, uh, first of all, certainly I remember the R.E.M. song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, uh, I'm not aware of any other songs that reference me. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I'm not aware of any. And was that a big honor uh, within my career? You bet. Uh, to have a song uh, done by R.A.M. in which you are mentioned, uh, is that an honor? You bet.
0: Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time... Have a great Shabbos.